Good evening. So here we are, heading into the home stretch of this retreat. And at this point, I often notice a familiar response coming up. And that response is, seven days is too short. (laughs) And Julie reminded me that I said that last time, too. (laughs) So I should probably listen to her equanimity talk again. Because I'm aware of some desire, some clinging desire for more time. Time to keep exploring these teachings and to keep trying them out, keep putting them into practice. And as a teacher, one of the challenges of a relatively short retreat like this is that the Dharma is just so vast, it's so extensive. And even just within the Satipatthana Sutta, there is so much useful information to convey, let alone in all the other literally thousands of discourses in the Pali Canon. So it feels almost painful to have to leave out some important teachings. And it is a good workout for my equanimity to choose one topic for tonight's talk and just let go of what we don't have time for this time. And trusting that you'll all find your own way to whatever teachings you still need. So before we get to the topic that I've chosen, just a little more context about the overall practice that we're doing here. So, as Herbie reminded me, when I was here for the retreat last time, I mentioned how the English monk, Ajahn Suchito, he speaks about this practice as being a process of crafting the heart, crafting or shaping the heart. And he uses the analogy of how a craftsperson gets to know their material first. So whether the craftsperson works with wood or clay or metal or glass or paper, they, they need to get to know their material. And in the same way, we start by getting to know our own hearts and minds. As we've been doing, we sensitize ourselves to what is actually going on in here. We meet our experience with patience, with kindness, with interest. We notice all the different intentions and motivations that emerge so that we can learn how to gently shape them in a way that allows the natural strength and beauty to be revealed. So for a craftsperson, that shaping of the material involves gently removing what's not needed and at the same time revealing, highlighting, polishing the beauty that's already there. So we're doing something similar with our own hearts and minds as we gently remove those painful and afflictive mental states, those painful states that obscure our natural brightness and clarity and care. So you may remember that when I spoke about compassion the other night, I briefly mentioned how the Buddha understood that we are able to remove these afflictive states because they're not ours, they're not inherent in us. And he spoke about these afflictive states as being adventitious. And adventitious is a fancy word, a fancy way of saying they're visitors, they don't belong to us. They're not who we truly are. 
even though at those times when we might be in the midst of a multiple hindrance attack, it can seem very much like they are us. So all through the Buddha's teachings, we see this twofold approach to practice. We learn how to recognize what's unskillful, harmful, leading to further suffering, so that we can reduce and then end that harm. And on the other hand, we learn how to recognize what's skillful, beneficial, and leads to freedom, so that we can strengthen those qualities that deepen ease and happiness and peace. And that process of recognition is already well underway for all of us. So as you hopefully remember, yesterday afternoon in the relational practice, we started exploring the third establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of mind. And we were looking specifically at mental qualities in the diet practice. And I invited you to bring awareness to what's happening in the mind in a pretty objective non-involved way just seeing clearly and naming the underlying mind states or qualities of mind independent of the content the thoughts so in that exploration we were practicing with a non-judgmental attitude that just recognizes experience as it is and this is a key aspect of the development of mindfulness practice But it's not the whole of it, at least not in the context of the Buddha's teachings. I mention this because as mindfulness has become more mainstream, in some contexts it's sometimes presented as you just be with your experience. And I myself have heard teachings like this, just be with it, just be with it, just be with it, whatever it is, without trying to change it in any way. And while this is true that In the first three establishments of mindfulness in the Buddha's teachings, we bring that non-reactive awareness to experience. We do it to see it clearly. And then we bring in wisdom, the wisdom that understands which of those experiences are harmful and which are beneficial, onward leading. And this is why sati is often referred to in the discourses as sati-sampajana, Janya, Satisampajanya, as Julie mentioned the other day, mindfulness and clear comprehension. And it's that clear comprehension that brings in the discernment to know what's useful and what isn't. So now, when we come to the fourth establishment of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of Dhammas, there's a slight shift in approach. And in relation to some aspects of this section, we're not just passively observing experience anymore. We're learning how to release entanglement with what's unskillful and how to strengthen the skillful mental qualities that support insight. So, in the context of this fourth establishment of mindfulness, there are two particular lists that I'd like to look at a little more now, namely the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. So Julie already spoke about the five hindrances the other night. As you know, they're those five afflictive mental states that get in the way of clear seeing. 
that impede our progress to freedom. So it's review time. Let's check how much do you remember. Let's see if you can name what these five hindrances are in order. Anybody remember the first one? A little more subtle. Attachment. A little more precise. A little more precise. I'm going to push you to use the actual word. Sense desire. Yeah. Sense, desire for sense pleasure. So all those things you name, clinging, craving, attachment, are all in the terrain, but specifically the hindrances, desire for sense pleasure. Okay, the next one. Yes, thank you. Very quick. Aversion, <laughs> ill will. Yep, third one. Very good, sloth and torpor, also known as drowsiness, dullness, stiffness, apathy. Next one. Uh, less later. Yep, restlessness and worry. And then at the back, doubt, skeptical doubt. Thank you. Okay, so far, so familiar. So, what about the other side of the scale? Seven awakening factors in order, because the order is important. First one should be relatively easy. Yes, mindfulness. Yes, well done. Okay, next one. Sati. That's mindfulness. Sati is mindfulness. Yep, so yep, first one. Second one. Mm, close, there's one before that. Investigation, thank you. And then energy, so we've got mindfulness, investigation, energy. Joy, thank you, yep. Then. No, matter's not actually an awakening factor. It's a. It's a skillful quality, but it comes from kind of a parallel series of the Brahma Vihara. Not quite. Tranquility. Thank you, tranquility. Well, I said that tranquility, and then not quite one before that. Not that's a parami. I mean, this is part of the challenge with all of these different lists, right? Many there is a lot of overlap. Concentration. Yes, samadhi, absorption, concentration, and then whoever said equanimity. Okay, so sati, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, samadhi, and equanimity. And I'm not surprised that those didn't kind of trip off the tongue quite as quickly as the hindrances do. Because when I do this with people, usually they're much more familiar with the five hindrances than the awakening factors. And I don't know about for you, <laughs> sounds like you really are familiar with that. I don't know about for any of you, but for me, I've, on various retreats, I've heard a lot about the hindrances and relatively little about the awakening factors. So when I was on staff at IMS in the US, I was there for seven years. And during those seven years, I sat in on maybe 500 Dharma talks. 
And I didn't hear that many talks about the awakening factors, but I heard quite a lot about the hindrances. And even today, if you check on Dharma Seed, which is the site where all of the insight recordings are, talks are, are uploaded, again, tons of talks about the hindrances, not so many about the awakening factors. In some ways, this is surprising, because without the awakening factors, it's impossible for transformative insights to arise. And insight is the whole purpose of the Pasna practice. So we've mentioned the German scholar-monk and meditator Bikranalia a few times now, partly because he's done a lot of research and written quite a few books on the Satipatthana Sutta. And he makes the point that all of the practices in the four establishments of mindfulness, all of them in various ways, are aimed at developing these seven factors of awakening. So even though we don't have too much time left on retreat now, tonight I wanted to at least give you an overview of what the awakening factors are, not just for future reference, but also because, as I hope you'll realize, it's likely that you all have already been experiencing some of them to some extent, probably much more than you may have realized and in fact, being able to at least recognize what the awakening factors are is a crucial first stage that helps them to strengthen, to grow, so that they do become powerful resources to help our practice deepen. So for each of us, it takes training to recognize what the awakening factors are and how they show up in the context of our own minds. So in a way, how they feel what their different flavors are for us. So I'm going to run through them again now, just a little bit more slowly, just to start this process of familiarization. And as, I, as we go through the list again, as you hear each one, you might just notice how your being responds. So you might notice with some of them, they feel relevant, they feel somewhat alive in your experience right now. Whereas some of them, there might not be any kind of recognition. They might not feel relevant or, ap or apparent. So we'll do that in a moment. But just before we do, one caveat. We want to try to do this with as little judgment as possible. So noticing the quality of the minds like this, it's a training in discernment rather than judgment. And for me, the difference between discernment and judgment is that discernment is just a clear, objective awareness. Whereas judgment tends to bring with it a more rigid sense of right and wrong and good and bad and success and failure. And pretty all, much always a sense of me in there who is right or wrong, succeeding or failing. So as best you can, put aside any identification with this process and just tune in now to the first awakening factor, sati or mindfulness. And you can just ask yourself, is mindfulness present right now or not? And the answer will always be yes, because just asking that question right there, there is awareness. So that's an easy win. 
Done. We want to start well. Okay, so how about the second factor, investigation? Investigation of dhammas, investigation of principles or qualities. And this is a more technical term. For now, I'm going to keep it simple. And just, is there interest and curiosity about your experience? Yeah? See a few nods. So again, just asking the question. Is there investigation? Is investigation? So, another easy win. <laughs> then the third factor, energy. And so just noticing the quality of the energy in the mind now. Is it a little revved up, agitated? Is it a little sinking or dull? Or is there a, I'm doing this because I don't quite know the words, this is fine, steady, vibrational presence. But just to notice, how's the energy right now? And then the fourth factor is piti in Pali, P-I-T-I, sometimes translated as joy, rapture, delight. Any trace of joy in your mind right now? And if not joy, perhaps some sense of lightness. Lightness, possibly delight. Sense of uplift. And then the fifth factor is tranquility. So you can notice, is there any trace of ease or calm, stillness, serenity in the body, in the mind? Just tuning into how that feels. And then the sixth factor, samadhi, that stability, steadiness, gatheredness, unification of mind, absorption. And just noticing how gathered, steady, undistracted is the mind right now. And then lastly, equanimity, upekka. This is some evenness of heart and mind, some balance, some steadiness in the middle, not pulled into wanting, pushed into not wanting. Just seeing if there is a quality of balance, equanimity present or not. Okay, so that's just a very brief overview of what these seven factors are so that you might start to get a clearer sense of that there's a reciprocal relationship between the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. So to put it very simply, when the hindrances are present, then by definition the awakening factors are absent and vice versa.
When the awakening factors are present, the hindrances are absent. So I often joke that I find it reassuring that there are only five hindrances and there are seven (laughs) awakening factors. So we've got more good guys on our side. So I'd like to circle back now to the point I made earlier in relation to having heard a lot of talks about the hindrances. And I think there's a few reasons that might be worth highlighting. And one is just the mind's inbuilt negativity bias. As we know, neuroscience researchers have found that this negativity bias makes us pay much more attention to what's painful, difficult, challenging than to what's pleasant and easeful and beneficial. And because the hindrances are afflictive states, the mind tends to get pulled there. We're just more aware of them due to their painful nature. And it's easy to get caught up in struggling with them, developing aversion to them and unconsciously identifying with them. And often we're so engrossed in the struggle with the hindrances that we don't learn to recognize those moments when more refined mental states might be present, such as the seven awakening factors. And because the awakening factors are quieter and more subtle, and they're not threatening to our well-being, we need quite a refined, steady sati, mindfulness, and samadhi in order to be able to notice them. So that's one reason I think we tend not to hear so much about the awakening factors. The second is possibly just in the name, the fact that they're named awakening factors or factors of enlightenment. So it can sound as if these are very rarefied and refined states of mind and they're associated with awakening with a capital A or enlightenment, liberation, nibbana. And so sometimes people consciously or unconsciously assume, well, this must be a pretty advanced practice and I'm nowhere near ready for nibbana. So this is another reason I wanted to explore them tonight to hopefully demystify what they actually are. And for those of you who might have some sense that they're somehow beyond your current practice capacity, to show, as I said earlier, that actually you all have already been experiencing them, probably more than you realize. Having said that, Although awakening, enlightenment, nibbana is the whole goal, the purpose of insight practice, there are a lot of misconceptions about what this term means and even what the term insight or vipassana means. So quite often people will come to me in individual meetings and say, well, just to be clear, I have zero interest in nibbana. (laughs) okay and so sometimes I'll ask them well what does that mean to you and they usually can't answer (laughs) so I might say well why are you doing this practice and often they'll say something like well I want to suffer less or I'd like to live with more ease or I'd like to be kinder to myself or be able to help other people more effectively 
all of which to my mind are aspects of Nibbana. So I'd like to take a, a little bit of a detour now and just to try to clear up some of those misunderstandings and just go through what some of these key terms mean. So starting with insight. Insight is the usual English translation of the Pali word Vipassana. And Vipassana literally means clear seeing, or seeing distinctly, or seeing separately. And at first, the insights, the clear seeings that we have, they tend to be on a more personal or psychological nature. So we start to see through our own conditioning. We start to understand our personal history. We start to release some of those more entrenched psychological habit patterns and to see through some of the ways that we get caught in identifying with our experience so that we can release those patterns and live with more ease. And then sometimes alongside that or as the practice progresses, we start to understand more clearly that everything we experience is impermanent and changing in nature. It's imperfect or unsatisfactory, dukkha. And it's impersonal, not self, anatta. In other words, there isn't actually an inherent, fixed, unchanging essence of me in here to whom all this is happening. And as these more universal insights strengthen, we're able to let go into deeper and deeper experiences of freedom. Whatever level we're currently practicing at, the purpose of insight is to reduce suffering. So in line with that, I really appreciate the English Dharma teacher, Rob Rebea's definition. So in his book, Seeing That Freeze, he begins by describing insight quite loosely as, quote, any realization, understanding, a way of seeing things that brings to any degree a dissolution of a decrease in dukkha. So this is a pretty practical way to understand whether something is an insight or not. Has it brought with it to any degree a decrease in dukkha, suffering, stress, distress? So it reminds us that the point of all this diligent effort that we're making here is to free the heart and mind from suffering. It's not about trying to have some esoteric, far-out experience that we can impress our teachers or our friends or ourselves with. But this is a pretty common misunderstanding of what this practice is about. And especially when it comes to words such as awakening, enlightenment, nibbana, to many people those words sound quite abstract, remote, distant, exotic, possibly even totally meaningless or irrelevant. For some people there might be a vague idea of maybe getting there, wherever that is, maybe at some point in the far distant future, but here and now those terms don't sound very appealing. For other people, there might be a more definite sense that Nibbana is pointing to freedom from suffering, but there's an unconscious belief that it's going to take decades of battling with the hindrances and overcoming the defilements and 
getting through the afflictive energies before we can ever experience anything remotely like freedom. So in many ways, especially in the beginning of practice, people can tend to assume that Nibbana is something remote and mysterious, not really applicable to their own lives. Or even to think that it would be presumptuous or arrogant to think it might be something we could experience for ourselves. So I'd like to emphasize one very practical definition of Nibbana from the suttas, one that's been really helpful in my own practice. And that definition is, Nibbana is the heart-mind that is free from all forms of greed, hatred, and delusion. In other words, free from the three root afflictive energies. And this definition of Nibbana is something that we can experience for ourselves, at least in moments, whenever the heart and mind are temporarily free of afflictive states, as can happen on retreat, and as many of you pointed to in the meetings. Now, at first, these moments might be fleeting, just nanoseconds, but the more we learn to recognize those moments of temporary freedom, that helps to strengthen them. And over time, they become more and more the default setting of the heart and the mind. So from this perspective, Nibbana is not a big bang experience where we achieve some sudden radical transformation into a state of permanent bliss, that pink cloud that I mentioned a few days ago that I thought I was going to somehow get to. Nibbana is not a static state that we get but it's a process that all of us here are going through. And this is one reason why I prefer the term awakening to the term enlightenment. Because enlightenment is a noun, and it suggests that nibbana is a state or a place. Whereas awakening is a verb. It's an action that happens or a process. It's a process of letting go of the hindrances, strengthening the awakening factors. Okay, so with that as context, I'd like to say a little more now about how we can support the awakening factors to arise. So those of you who already have some familiarity with them, you know, unfortunately, we can't just will them into existence. In fact, trying to make them come up or trying to hold on to them if they have arisen, is a setup for disappointment because the underlying motivation of greed and aversion, those are hindrances. And as we know, the hindrances and the awakening factors can't coexist. So we can't make them come up, but what we can do is help to establish supportive conditions that make them more likely to emerge. So there's a whole section in the suttas, in the Samyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses, and it talks about different aspects of the awakening factors. And early on, it makes an analogy with food. And it says that just as this body depends on food for its sustenance, in the same way, the hindrances and the awakening factors depend on certain fuel. So I'll read you the actual words just to get a flavor of them. 
This is based on a translation by Bhikkhu Sujato. It says, Practitioners, this body is sustained by food. It depends on food to continue. And without food, it doesn't continue. In the same way, the five hindrances are sustained by fuel. They depend on fuel to continue. And without fuel, they don't continue. This body is sustained by food. It depends on food to continue. And without food, it doesn't continue. In the same way, the seven awakening factors are sustained by fuel. They depend on fuel to continue. And without fuel, they don't continue. So maybe that sounds a little bit abstract. But we can interpret it as an invitation to consider in any moment, what am I feeding my mind? Am I feeding or fueling afflictive mental states or beneficial mental states? In a way, it's that simple. So hopefully you're getting a sense that the seven awakening factors don't just arise out of nowhere. They're supported by causes and conditions that we have some influence over. And one crucial one is where and how we place our attention. So as I briefly mentioned the other night, the quality of our minds has a huge impact on how we experience the world. And this is described very clearly in the opening lines of the Dhammapada that probably many of you are familiar with. It says, we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. So I wonder if you may have observed in the last few days this making of the world in various ways. It might not be pleasant, but this is one of the advantages of being on retreat. Here, the external conditions are pretty much the same for all of us. But our inner experiences can shift dramatically day to day, hour to hour. We can find ourselves going from heaven to hell and back again, sometimes just in one meditation. Have any of you noticed that? Each day can be radically different, but nothing has changed outside too much. Why? Because of what we're doing with our mind. What are we feeding? Hindrances or awakening factors. Just to give an example from my own life, and you can probably think of similar ones from your experience, but I mentioned a few times now being on retreat at the Forest Refuge in Barrie, Massachusetts. And that center was purpose-built about 20 years ago, specifically for long-term retreat practice. So the conditions there are pretty good. 
everyone has their own room. Perhaps I shouldn't be telling you this. <laughs> Sorry, people. Where is it? <laughs> Barry, Massachusetts. Everyone has their own room. The buildings are insulated and centrally heated. <laughs> Plenty of space in the meditation room. Plenty of space in the dining room. And hundreds of acres of beautiful woodland to walk around in. So conditions there, are in many ways, they're as close to perfect as we might find anywhere in the world for retreat. But when I'm on retreat there, am I satisfied, content, happy the whole time? No. <laughs> and what, why is that? Because of my mind. Where I'm putting my attention, what I'm feeding in my mind. So just one example. There was a time, actually many times that I was on retreat there, where I just kept noticing the flooring. You know, when you're on retreat, you have your eyes down a lot. And at that time, when the Forest Refuge was built, they put cork floor tiles through the whole thing. And for some reason, they weren't installed properly. They kept curling up and coming unstuck. And the maintenance people had to keep going around and gluing them back down. And as soon as they glued down one there, another one would pop up here. So there was this kind of battle between the maintenance people and the cork flooring that went on for years. And because, and you know, you're laughing because on one level it's pretty trivial. But because I used to be in the construction industry, I would see these tiles and my mind would go into what should have happened and why it was like that and how they could have fixed it and whose fault it was and what the solution was and on and on and on. And this kept happening over and over and over. <laughs> and it was an embarrassingly long time before I remembered. My teacher at the time, Seda Uvivakananda, talking about sense restraint. And this is an aspect of relinquishment or renunciation where we make a choice. Again, what are we feeding the mind? And so I decided with his instruction, he said, when I was walking, I shouldn't let my head turn even a millimeter. I shouldn't let my eyes move even a millimeter from the walking track. And I started to experiment with this. And I saw just how much my eyes kept being pulled back to the flooring and then the whole chain reaction would start again. <laughs> so eventually, I was able to stop doing that. And although the idea of self-restraint, sense-restraint might sound burdensome, or even like a form of deprivation, in that context, it was a huge relief to protect myself from letting the mind get caught yet again and strengthening that neural pathway of aversion, of judgment, distraction, and so on. And when my mind was less agitated, it was much easier for wisdom to come back in. And then I could reconnect with my deeper purpose, my higher aspiration. And I could ask myself, why are you here? To obsess about cork flooring? Or to free yourself from clinging and resisting for the benefit of all beings? So that's a relatively mild example, and I've got plenty of others that aren't really suitable for public consumption. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I just share that one in case 
Maybe you've noticed something similar even here on this retreat. Some particular aspect of it just keeps hooking in the mind. And if you do notice that, hopefully you can bring some humor, some compassion to it. Because that's why we're here, to see more clearly what our untrained hearts and minds do when they are left to run wild without any guidance. And we're also here to see what's possible when we can learn how to shape our hearts and minds, just as Ajahn Suchito describes it. We shape our hearts and minds in ways that help the seven awakening factors to arise. So I've been borrowing Ajahn Suchito's language here because it gives the sense that we can't force this process. And it's pretty common on first hearing this list of the awakening factors. Sometimes people feel inspired and think, okay, these are qualities I've got to get, that I've got to somehow manufacture. But that very conditioning around getting and doing and acquiring inhibits the these states from arising more naturally. So challenging though it is, we need to keep releasing this doing mentality that we so often bring to practice. And as we keep gently releasing the tendency to control, eventually there's a shift and we experience very directly the benefits that come from practicing not out of will-driven effort, but allowing dharma-driven effort. So I'm making a distinction here between these two, between will-driven practice and dharma-driven practice. And by will-driven practice, I mean that more forceful energy centers around a sense of me, the one who's doing the practice the one who is responsible for controlling and monitoring and micromanaging every aspect of it to try and get it right. And maybe just from that brief description, you can hear how tiring it is to be practicing with that constant self-referencing effort. Eventually, though, almost in spite of that effort, enough momentum develops in the practice and we're able to relax back and trust the Dharma to do its work. And this is what I mean by Dharma-driven practice, Dharma-driven effort. We realize that there's a natural, organic process that's happening due to conditions. And all we actually need to do is to keep setting up those conditions and then settle back and enjoy the ride and what a ride it is. I'm pretty sure that all of you here have experienced at least a few of these awakening factors, even if just for a few minutes at a time. And maybe you didn't name them to yourselves as awakening factors with a capital A and a capital F, and they may not be particularly strong or stable. As Bhikkhu Analio likes to say, they may be just little buds but these buds have the potential to open into flowers, which in turn have the potential to bear great fruit and turn into mighty trees. So I hope that this overview of the awakening factors gives some sense of possibility, some inspiration about 
where all of this practice is leading. So just remembering that all of this is a natural, organic process. And in the suttas, it's said that just as a river inclines and flows towards the ocean, so the awakening factors incline and flow towards freedom. As we get our first taste of how wonderful the mind feels when it is temporarily free of afflictive states, and how wonderful it feels when all the skillful qualities can come in. Qualities such as generosity and metta and compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, and all of the awakening factors. That taste of freedom builds trust and confidence. A trust and confidence that is onward leading, as they say. So here's one description from the suttas that just conveys that natural momentum that builds in the practice. It says, Practitioners, suppose it rains heavily on a mountain top and the water flows downhill to fill the hollows, crevices and creeks. As they become full, they fill up the pools. The pools fill up the lakes. The lakes fill up the streams, and the streams fill up the rivers. And as the rivers become full, they fill up the ocean. In the same way, a practitioner has experiential confidence in the Buddha, the teaching and the Sangha, and the ethics loved by the noble ones. These things flow onwards. And after crossing to the far shore, they lead to the ending of all defilements. So the far shore here is another synonym for awakening, Nibbana. So may all of our diligent efforts here on this retreat help us to experience these seven factors of awakening that support transformative insight and the deepest freedom of heart and mind. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment and let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.